Well, one of the things uh, I hate more than anything else in this world is slow, tedious work that requires like attention to detail, like a lot of attention to detail. Like if there's a job that requires like a, a measuring tape or like a level and marking things with a pencil, that's not a job for me. Okay, that's the kind of job that I like to contract out. But last fall, I got a new place, and so I was brainstorming with one of my friends about how, how to decorate. She suggested trying out peel-and-stick wallpaper. Anyone seen this stuff? It's peel-and-stick wallpaper. So I, I'd never heard of it either. I looked it up online. It looked really good, and I thought, peel-and-stick. Like, that sounds like that's within my realm of expertise. Right? I've been peeling and sticking since I was a little kid. I can do stickers. You know, I could do that. So I went out. And I bought a bunch of this adhesive wallpaper. And this stuff, it comes in rolls that are about two feet wide. So it's a roll, two feet wide. And it really is, it's just like a giant sticker. You uh, measure out a strip as long as the distance between your floor and your ceiling. And you peel the back off and one strip at a time, you make your way across the wall until it's covered. And now the internet had assured me that this was quick, and that this was easy. But once I got going, I realized that once again, the internet had lied to me. (laughs) Because measuring tape required. A level also required. Marking things with a pencil was also required. And it didn't take long for me to recognize how important the measuring and the pencil marking and the leveling really was. Because after I finally got the first strip of wallpaper up on my wall, I stood back and I realized that every single imperfection that I had overlooked, every place where that nine-foot-long sticker had gotten a little bit crooked, was going to throw off the entire rest of the wall. And so I couldn't put up the next strip of wallpaper properly until I went back and got the first one all lined up and got things leveled out and started again. And so my quick and easy DIY home project turned into several agonizing days of me wrestling giant stickers onto my wall, and then peeling them back off. It's very convenient, peel and stick, right? Peeling them back off, getting my level out, trying, trying again, and kind of keeping on going with this until finally I got the entire uh, wall covered, uh, very inconveniently, the longest wall in my house. But eventually, uh, I got it done. Uh, But it was, for me, an absolute nightmare. (laughs) I was not exhibiting the fruit of the spirit during those days. But the reality is, the truth is, that some things in life are kind of like this, right? You can start off heading in one direction, can start off with one goal in mind, but it's really easy for things to shift, to shift a little, right? And when they do, everything else gets thrown out of whack. And so you need to go back to the beginning and line everything up again and get it in order so that you can uh, get yourself back on 
the right course. And this isn't just true when it comes to DIY projects. It's also true in our spiritual lives. A good chunk of the New Testament is made up of letters that were written to churches that had committed themselves to the gospel, that had started out strong, but in one way or another had been pulled off course and needed to be reminded of what it meant for them to be the kinds of people that God was calling them to be. This morning, we are in week three of a three-part series on faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. These three virtues uh, were virtues that the New Testament authors call God's people to again and again. You see them again and again in the New Testament. And they're the three virtues that kind of keep us moving in the right direction as people who are living our lives in light of God's kingdom and who are anticipating the day that it will arrive in all of its fullness. And we've been looking really specifically at the way that Paul talks about these virtues in a letter that he wrote to a church in a place called Corinth. Now, all kinds of things had gone off course in Corinth. This was a church where there was division, there was conflict that, was, that had broken out, there was pride, there was like a lack of mutual respect towards people within the community, Immorality was running wild. The church was a mess. And so Paul intervenes, and he kind of works through one, uh, one issue after another with this church. He gives them his guidance and his direction. And then in the passage that we've been looking at, it's kind of like he pulls things back to the very basics, to the foundation that we're called to build our lives on as followers of Jesus. So uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 to 13 says this, we don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in the fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, and love extravagantly. And the best of the three is love. So faith, or trust, as Eugene Peterson translate, translates it in the message, hope and love. Now we've talked about faith, and we've talked about hope, and this morning we're going to talk about love. And if you remember, uh, throughout this series, we've been having different people from within our leadership team kind of come up and share after the messages, and so we're going to have that again this morning. We're going to hear from Eric and Twyla, uh, so I'm excited for that. So this morning we're talking about love, so let's start here. How is your love life? How is your love life? Paul would say that the way you answer that question is the most important thing about you. He doesn't have romance in mind, right? That's often the way we talk about our love life. But what Paul's talking about is something different. How much of your identity, how much of the way you think about yourself and feel about yourself is rooted in the reality that you are loved by God? 
And how does love impact the way you live and make decisions? And how much does love shape the interactions that you have with people on a day-to-day basis, with your family, with your coworkers, with the person who makes your coffee at Tim Hortons? How is your love life? In the passage that we've been looking at, Paul gives special status to love. After listing the three virtues, Paul says that the greatest, the best of the three is love. And love is actually Paul's main point, right? If you look at the context of the entire chapter, chapter 13. And there's a couple of reasons that love gets so much attention here. One reason is very simply because of the context. A lack of love was the root issue behind every single problem that Paul had to confront within the Corinthian church. The the church had become divided into camps based on which Christian leaders they preferred. There was this us versus them thing kind of going on. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The poor weren't uh, being included and honored the way that they should be. People were kind of ranking each other based on uh, their spiritual gifts. There was like a hierarchy to the ones that were more important than other ones, and they were kind of uh, determining who had more value based on that. Love was the missing ingredient in so much of what the Corinthians were doing. And so Paul gets to chapter 13, and it's almost like he calls a time out. And he pulls things back to the foundation so that they can get back on course and moving in the right direction. And the foundation that he wants to pull uh, the Corinthians back to is the foundation of love. In chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, Paul says, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. If we pay attention to that, if we let that sink in, this passage is just as powerful and convicting as it is beautiful. Paul says that when we speak, if love isn't at the heart of what we're saying, it's like we're just up here like smashing symbols together, just making a bunch of noise. He says that we can know everything there is to know But if we don't have love, it's useless. We can have enough faith to move mountains. We can give away every single thing that we have to the poor. We can even give up our lives as martyrs. But if love isn't the motive that's driving us, Paul says, doesn't matter. None of it actually matters. In the kingdom of God, nothing matters. Nothing has any value if love is not at the heart of it. The life of faith isn't about what we can get out of it, 
It's about opening ourselves up to receive the gift of God's love and then letting that love overflow to others. So love gets special attention just because of the issues that Paul is addressing, but it also gets elevated above the other virtues because love is the defining feature of the kingdom of God breaking into the world. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, faith will become sight and hope will be fulfilled. Faith and hope are critical to keeping us moving in the right direction on this side of heaven, but we're not going to need them in the same way once we get there. Love, though, love will last forever. When God's kingdom comes in its fullness, we will experience love like we've never experienced before for all of eternity. And living in love now is one of the ways that we experience God's kingdom and let it radiate through us until we get there. In 1 John uh, 4 verse 8, it says that God is love. God is love. In his very essence, God is love. And so when his spirit fills us and transforms us, what that looks like is love. In Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, somebody asks Jesus to identify the most important commandment in the law. And this is how he responds. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So this is a familiar passage, right? And it's easy to kind of just breeze by it without really paying attention to how radical what Jesus is saying really is. Jesus is saying that loving our neighbors as ourselves is just as important as loving God. And actually that the two go hand in hand. They're connected to each other. The more that we love God, the more we'll love the people that he created in his image. In John 13, verse 35, Jesus says this, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Isn't that wild? He told his disciples that the way people would be able to recognize them, the thing that would set them apart from everyone else in this world was their bumper stickers. Not their bumper stickers, right? Was their political affiliation. Not their political affiliation. Was their perfect doctrine. Not even that. The the way that people would be able to tell them apart from the rest of the world was their love. Now, let's not kid ourselves. If we were to uh, go out and ask a hundred random people in our community what sets Christians apart from everyone else, love probably wouldn't be the first thing on too many people's lists. 
And if you or I got really honest about our own love life, each one of us would probably have to admit that most of the time we fall short on this kind of love that Jesus calls us to. Because we all really love the idea of love until we run into somebody who's like almost impossible (laughs) to love, right? Or until it costs us something. And this is why it can be so tempting to make our faith all about believing the right things and doing the right things because it's actually way easier. But that's not the kind of life that God designed us for. Believing the right things matters. Doing the right things matters. This is all part of discipleship. But God designed us to be people whose lives are defined by love. We become our truest selves. We live the most meaningful joy-filled lives when we're open to receiving God's love and giving ourselves away in love to other people. We were made for love. And so this, of course, raises a very important question. What is love? What is love? Many wise minds have tried to offer insight into this question. Tina Turner for example, right, once said that love is a secondhand emotion. Anna from Frozen, love is an open door. I'm sure that means something. It's important that we understand what scripture is talking about when it calls us to love, because in our world, the world that we're living in, we pick up all kinds of skewed ideas about what love actually is. And these skewed ideas can get us in all kinds of trouble. In English, love is a really clumsy word. We know this, right? We use the word love to cover all kinds of things. I love pizza. I love my family. I love when avocados go on sale. But I don't love all of those things in the same way. In the Greek, there are four words that are used to describe different aspects of love. And the Greek word that's uh, being used in the passage we've been looking at is Agape. Agape. Some of you are probably familiar with that. And and so that's the kind of love that we're going to be focusing our attention on this morning. Now, before we talk about what love is, let's clear up some things about what love is not. First of all, love is not a feeling. In our culture, When we talk about love, normally what we're actually talking about is a feeling. It's something that comes over us, almost kind of against our will, something we can fall into, right? And something that we can fall out of. When we say that we love somebody, what it really usually means is that our our personalities match up pretty nicely. And we feel warm and fuzzy inside when we're with them. But the thing about feelings is that feelings are really just a bunch of chemicals swirling around in our brains. And they can change depending on what's going on around us, right? We can't always trust our feelings to lead us down a path of goodness and truth, amen? For example, when we're hungry or when we're tired, it can be really difficult to feel warm fuzzies towards just about anyone. 
The love that scripture calls us to is steadier and deeper and more resolved than a love that's based on our feelings. When Jesus said to love our enemies, he wasn't meaning that we should try to feel really warm and fuzzy about them on the inside. And this should actually come as a great relief to us because it means that love is always on the table. We can always live into this call to love, whether the people that we are dealing with are people that we find absolutely delightful or whether they're people that we find like a little less delightful. Love is not a feeling. And love isn't just acting like anything goes. It's not wishy-washy. Right? Being loving doesn't mean that we can't have hard conversations. It doesn't mean that there's no such thing as right and wrong or accountability. One of the mistakes that I think we often make in Christianity is talking about truth and love like they're opposites from one another, like they're mutually exclusive. And this is a mistake because love is actually at the heart of all truth in the gospel. In the cross, we see the full extent of the impact of our sin and our brokenness. Scripture never tries to pretend that sin and evil aren't a big deal, right? They are. But they're a big deal because they steal and kill and destroy God's good creation. And God loves his good creation. God loves us. And so on the cross, we also see the full extent of God's love, that he was willing to give up everything so that we could be set free and made right with him. In the gospel, truth and love don't stand in opposition to one another. They go hand in hand. And Jesus shows us the way to live that out, to live a life that's characterized by both. So what is love? The word agape uh, refers to a self-giving love that persists through any circumstances, regardless of how the other person responds. And as Christians, when we want to know what this kind of love looks like, who do we look to? Sunday school answers. Jesus. (laughs) We look to Jesus. 1 John 4 verse 9 to 10 says this. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real life. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So there are a a few really important things that this passage tells us. Firstly, it tells us that love comes from God. It's not something that we have to try to work up in ourselves. It's not dependent on our own abilities. Love is a gift that comes from God. And our love for God and for others is a response to that love. Secondly, one of the ways that God showed us his love was by sending Jesus to be with us. Before he died for us, he came to be with us. Love is about presence 
in Christ, God experienced the fullness of what it is like to be a human. He laughed, he cried, he suffered, he felt pain, he shared meals with people. Love means taking the time to understand someone else's experience. It means being with them and seeing them and listening to them. There's no such thing as loving somebody just in theory. Love isn't something that we can just check off a to-do list and consider, consider it done. Love requires presence. And the third thing this passage shows us about love is that it's sacrificial. God's love for us came at a tremendous cost. He loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sin. The love that we're called to as followers of Jesus isn't what we can get out of it. It's not about how good it makes us feel. It's a love that's willing to lay itself down for the well-being of others. So Jesus uh, says that love is supposed to be the thing that we're known for as his followers. I think most of us want to be the kinds of people who love others well. But in real life, the truth is that this can be incredibly difficult. And so how do we start to move in that direction? How do we become people who love others well? Before we wrap up, we're going to talk about three really practical shifts that we can make to how we're living to enhance our love lives or to be formed into people whose lives are defined by God's love. Firstly, if we want to be people who love well, the first thing we need to do is open ourselves up to receive God's love. And that might sound really obvious, but often we get so focused on doing the right things and believing the right things that we, without even realizing it, we, we bypass this. But this, we, there's no bypassing this step. It's only when we realize that we are loved by God and actually believe it that we can experience the joy of God's kingdom. It's only when we really let God's love shape the way that we see ourselves that we can experience the freedom of the gospel. And that old saying is true. You can't give away what you don't have. You can't give away what you don't have. To be people who love well, we need to be people who have experienced the power of God's unconditional love. In John 15, verse 9, Jesus says, I have loved you as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. Remain in my love. How have you been opening yourself up to experiencing God's love lately? Or is that something that's been kind of lost in the shuffle of your day-to-day -day life? There are so many different ways that we can connect with God, right? And we try to dig into to lots of them here at Evergreen. The gratitude booklet is a perfect example, something you could try this month. You know, we can, we can dig in, draw close to God through scripture or through prayer, through music, in nature, through community. But how is God inviting you to draw closer to him in this season of your life? God is love. It's something that he never runs out of. 
And when his love is the well that we're drawing from, we can love other people so much better. The second shift that will help us uh, become people who love well is changing the way we think about others. It's seeing the unsurpassable worth of every human being. Greg Boyd defines agape love as affirming the worth of another person at a cost to oneself. And I think that's actually really helpful because in real life, knowing what it looks like to love somebody can be really confusing, right? Because people are messy, relationships can be messy, there's times where relationships need to end. But regardless of what boundaries we might need to put up with somebody or what difficult conversations we might need to have, we can always affirm the unsurpassable worth that they have as a person who was made in God's image. And when we start to see people the way that God sees them, it often starts to shape the way that we feel about them and the way that we act towards them. So what if every time you had a conversation with somebody this week, you started off by affirming in your heart and in your mind that the person you're talking to is somebody with unsurpassable worth that was made in the image of God? Try it out. Try it out and pay attention to how it changes the way you feel towards them and how it changes the way that you listen to them throughout that conversation. Loving people well starts with affirming the truth about the unsurpassable worth that they have as human beings who were made in the image of God. And lastly, let love drive your actions. There will be people in your life who you find really easy to love. And those people are gifts from God. And there will be people in your life that you do not find very easy to love. And those people are a different kind of gift from God. Let your actions towards both kinds of people be motivated by love and characterized by love. In verses four to seven of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul gives a list of what it looks like when love gets worked out in practical ways in our lives. He says this, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Now, in English, the words that Paul uses to describe love get translated into adjectives. They're descriptive words. But in the Greek, the words that Paul uses are actually verbs. He uses words that describe a way of acting towards others. And Eugene Peterson actually uh, captures this well in his translation in the message. So I'm going to read how he translates this passage. It says, love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. 
Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going until the end. Love shapes the way we act. So if you're trying to figure out how to navigate, uh, navigate a, a situation, here's a really good question that you can ask yourself. What does love require of me? What does love require me, uh, of me? What if we were to filter everything we do and everything we say through that question? It would change everything. It would change everything. What does love require of me? So open yourself up to receive God's love. See the unsurpassable worth of every human being and let love drive your actions. When we make these three shifts to the way that we live, it will move us in the direction of becoming people whose lives are shaped by love. In the kingdom of God, love is the litmus test of our faith. Love is what we were made for. It's something that we never grow out of. It's at the core of everything that matters as followers of Jesus. We're living in a world that's full of hate and outrage and division. We're living in a world that is in, in desperate need of God's perfect, unconditional, transformative love. And God invites us to be people who experience the fullness of his love and then who use every little ordinary opportunity that we have to show his love to other people in practical ways. 1 John 4 verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. That's powerful. If we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. May we be people who let God's love be brought to full expression in us as we love one another well. This morning, uh, to wrap up, we're going to do a really simple practice called breath prayer. This is a breath prayer that we've done a few times here, but it's one that's really helpful just to, to center yourself in God's presence. And it's one that you can kind of carry you uh, with you throughout the rest of the week. And so as we practice it, I want to invite you to just take this space, to take this, these few moments to just remind yourself how loved you are. And as we leave, I'm going to invite you to take this with you. That This could be a practice that you uh, come back to again and again today and throughout this week. And it's called the Be Loved Prayer. So it's just praying, uh, be loved, kind of along with the rhythm of our breath. So first I'm going to invite you to just center yourself in God's presence. Just still your mind. Be reminded that God is as close as the air that you're breathing. God's love is perfect. 
It's unconditional. It knows everything about you, even the things that you try to hide from him, from yourself, and God loves you exactly as you are. And so I'm going to invite you to just, as you take a deep breath in, to say the word be, just in your heart and your mind. Be. And then as you exhale, I'm going to invite you to exhale the word loved. Inhale, be. And exhale, loved. And you can just keep going with that. And now I'm going to invite you to change it up just a little bit. To redirect your focus towards becoming God's love in the world. So inhale the word be. And then as you exhale, just pray the word love. Love is who God calls us to be in this world. It's what he's transforming you into. So be love. And just keep going with that. And maybe as you're praying that, I'm just going to invite you to bring someone to mind who you find really easy to love and to just uh, celebrate the reality that they are a person with unsurpassable worth who was made in the image of God. Just thank God for that as you hold them uh, before him in prayer. Somebody you find easy to love. And now think of somebody that you find a little more difficult to love. Just bring them to mind and let yourself be reminded in God's presence that they too are a person with unsurpassable worth who was made in the image of God. Maybe ask God's spirit to help you, help you see that. And lastly, I'm just going to invite you to just allow yourself to be reminded that this is also who you are, that you are a person with unsurpassable worth who was made in the image of God. God wants you to experience his love for you. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. God, we thank you um, that your love is the foundation that we can build our lives on, that your love never runs out, God, that your love is a well that never runs dry. And I pray, God, that this morning we would be once again reminded that we are so deeply loved by you. 
And we can rest in that. We can lean back in that. We can trust in that. That can be the reality that shapes the way we live every day. And God, may we be reminded that love is at the heart of everything you call us to as your people. That without love, anything we say, you know, it doesn't matter if love is absent. Anything we know is useless. God, any of the things we do, they just have no weight if they're absent of love. Maybe be once again reminded, God, and may you uh, help us to see the ways that you're calling us to reflect your love to the people around us, the people we interact with each and every day. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we've got uh, Twyla and Eric up here. And before we wrap up, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about some of the practical ways that they've kind of uh, experienced love, seen the, God's love at work in their lives and in the world. Um, no, one, no one's claiming to be a love expert here. <laughs> but I can say from, from um, knowing them that uh, they're both people who really exude God's love well. And uh, yeah. So... Uh, just by way of introduction, Eric, you're familiar with. He, actually, probably both of these faces are faces you've seen quite a bit. Eric up on the stage uh, leading worship, but he is also one of our elders. He's on our, our board of uh, elders, and I think he's coming up on six years. Is that true? Yeah, I'm done. A long time. Done next. Okay. I'm not even on. Am I on? Uh-uh. No. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm done my elder term next April. Yeah. Yeah. And Twyla is our, hey, <laughs> it is a joy <laughs> to be an elder. It's also a joy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I can appreciate that. And Twyla is our deacon of Connecting Points. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she's been serving in that role for like, it, it hopped in during COVID actually, right? Yeah. It's an interesting time to be in charge of like welcome ministries <laughs> and connect, getting people connected during the pandemic. Uh, and so she's been busy lately <laughs> as we've kind of been getting things up and rolling again. Yeah, so uh, first question I, that came to mind just to ask you guys is how would you say that the love we're called to as followers of Jesus is different than uh, the, what the world kind of considers love or how the world defines love? Sure, yeah. Um, well, when I was thinking about this, I didn't know you were going to make some song references, but I'm kind of glad that you did. Uh, <laughs> I am a music person, and growing up in the church, I used to listen to a lot of DC talk, so anyone who's my age um, and grew up in the church knows that we were not allowed to listen to Backstreet Boys, but we were allowed to listen to DC talk. Um, so one of their songs was actually Love is a Verb, and I always go back to that in terms of thinking of love as something that we do, not something that we feel. Yeah. Uh, and then fast forward well, a couple of decades, and I'm still listening to Toby Mac, who was one third of DC Talk and now has his own career. And he came out with a song right after he, he was nursing his father in his father's sort of last days. And the song says, this is what love looks like, poured out, used up, still willing to fight. And to me, that really showed not just a love that is a feeling, mm. but a love that is an action and a love that even when you are completely and totally just wrecked yourself, you're still willing to put in the love for that other person. Mm. And I see it in our community. I see it with parents, um, anyone who has children and who has sat up with them through a night of illness, you feel that way. You feel 
poured out, used up, still willing to be there and do things for them. Um, and I see it in, in lots of people who are taking care of loved ones, elderly, um, children, those who need more, those who need more help. Um, so I think that is where, to me, the difference between love in our society, which is somewhat of that feeling that you talked about, that feeling of falling in love or that, that idea of loving everything. Oh, I love pizza. Oh, I love my friends. I love everyone and everyone matters. And social justice is something that I really love and it's important to me. Those are good things. But they're not showing Christ's love until it's put into action, mm -hmm. until we're doing something about it and using up the love that we have inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, actually, we picked the easiest Sunday because she said everything in her sermon. She really did. Yeah. Yeah, it was all there. <laughs> my, my, how I would differentiate how the world sees love and how Christians should see love is, is it an inward action or is it an outward action? And so what I mean by, is it an inward action? Is it about me? So like when I say I love chocolate cake, nothing wrong with chocolate cake. Mm. It's good. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel good. And you can indulge on it to the point where it's unhealthy. And because it's all about me and people ap approach relationships like that too, where yeah. it's all about me and they indulge into a point where it's unhealthy. Yeah. Not that the relationship is bad, but the, there's an, un because it's an inward thinking thing. So the, really the difference is, is it inward thinking or is it outward thinking? Yeah, so, that's a yeah. good, that's a good differentiation. And it's, it's uh, like, is it about what I'm getting out of it or what I'm pouring into it? Totally. Um, who knew, like, Paul the Apostle was drawing on DC Talk, eh, when he wrote that? Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so Jesus says that love is supposed to be the thing that we are known for as, as his followers, but as we all know, that's not always the case. You know, we've gotten this wrong in a lot of, a lot of ways throughout history and, uh, and currently in the church. So why do you think that we're so prone to kind of getting this wrong or to missing it when it comes to love? you want me to go? Okay. So when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about um, a real quick story that kind of illustrates it. And so it's the watermelon story. I don't know if anybody knows it, but so there's a missionary and he's with a tribe and the tribe tells him there's this monster that they're scared of. And they open, they look out in the field and they're like, there's the monster. And the missionary sees a watermelon patch with a big watermelon. And that's what they were terrified of. And the missionary's like, you guys are crazy. That's just a watermelon. So he went out, cut it open and ate it. Terrified the tribe so much they killed him. So then the second missionary comes and same thing, they talk about the monster and they show him and the missionary knows this is a watermelon, this is something good to eat. But instead of just going out and showing them, he talked about it and walked alongside them and slowly crept up to it until they could discover together that it was good to eat. And so I think that in the church, because we have that good watermelon, we're prone in our very uh, instant society that we're just going to share it, here's what it is, put it in your face, and that puts people off. Rather than meeting people where they're at, you know, the love is kind, love is patient. I, I feel like the patience is a big thing um, that we, we're not willing to wait. We just want to, here, do it. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that comes across... It, it comes off bad. So like if, if you 
if you're patient with people, like this doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it does, but sometimes are we willing to walk alongside people as we go discover the watermelon together, right? Um, and that not just applies to the gospel. I think it applies to the divisions in our society of what I think, what somebody else thinks, and can I, uh, one of the things come out, you know, one of the greatest love people could do is lay, di- lay down their life for another, and are we willing to lay down our opinions for the other, right, and not be, here, it's in your face, but let's walk together on this, and, and um, yeah, I didn't read in the First Corinthians that love is agreeable, we don't have to agree with each other on stuff. Right. Um, it does say don't keep any record of wrongs. I really like that one. Yeah. And it also says it's not boastful, which I hear that as it doesn't keep track of how often I'm right either. Yeah. So yeah, that's, yeah. so that's kind of, I think, why the church gets into trouble is because we go too quick and we just want to show everybody the goodness. Yeah. But we need to learn to walk and meet people where they're at so that we can discover the goodness together. Yeah. That's why when when I was preparing, one of the things that really struck me uh, in a unique way was like if, and we know like the the cross is the center of why Jesus even came, but it's actually, um, if Jesus just came to die for us, he took a really inefficient route. First, he was born as a baby, right? He spent all this time, so it's like, it's the the death of Jesus, what he, he gave up in the crucifixion, um, is central, but also sometimes we miss the beauty of the love expressed through the incarnation, that God wasn't content to just, you know, jump onto a cross and now it's, it's, it's done, right? It was like he wanted to walk alongside people. Like Jesus cried. He like looked out at suffering. He like locked eyes with people who were in the margins of society. It's like, it's like he was, God wasn't content to just get, you know, get it, get it taken care of and move along. It was like he wanted to be with when he didn't force people either. Like I was yeah. thinking about the rich young ruler who asked, like, what do I got to do to follow you? And Jesus said, yeah. give up everything. And the guy couldn't. And and so he didn't force it on him. Like, he just, this is what it is. So it's not that you can't speak the truth and have difficult conversations, but you got to have, yeah, just that patience and kindness. Maybe that guy came back eventually. But Yeah, I always right? wonder with him. Like, you know, did he go think about it? <laughs> Did he go think about it? But what I, also in that passage, it says Jesus looked at him with love, which is powerful, right? Jesus wasn't just like, well, fine, have it your way, <laughs> sucker. <laughs> it's, like, it's like he actually saw the compassion, the compassion of somebody not able to let go, not able to see what was before him in Christ. And uh, even that, it's love, right? It's, and that's like the truth and love going hand in hand in Christ. Sorry, we could go on all day. Twilight. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's a good conversation. Yeah. I, I also think it... As Christians, we're asked to love, but also it ties into those other two points that we've talked about, the faith and hope. Yeah. And I think sometimes we, we go into a situation wanting to show love and we forget those other two points of it, that it needs to be tied into faith and hope and expl- expl- explaining that and expressing that to others doesn't come across as loving if it doesn't come with that patience and kindness mm-hmm. and faith and yeah. hope and, and brought to people as a gift and brought to people as um, something that they don't have to accept. I think what Eric said mm-hmm. was really important, that it's, it's not forced upon anyone. Yeah. And I do think sometimes we feel that sense of righteousness, that we know in our hearts that this is right, and so we just want that to be the way that everyone sees it. Yeah. 
the watermelon's great. Just just eat it, right? <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. We gotta walk with people. We gotta yeah. we gotta ask them to come with us and yeah. check it out. Totally. Yeah. I love that. Um, how do you think we go about becoming more loving people? Especially when we're thinking about people who are difficult to love. Yeah, the difficult people. Yeah. Um, that's a me problem. That's how yeah. I look. That's yeah. how I look at that. Yeah. The inward yeah. and the outward thing. Um, when you're approaching things, when when I see someone that's difficult to love, you got to ask yourself why. Is it because they annoy me? Is it because it's going to take up my time? Is it going to because like they smell funny and I don't like that? All of those are those inward thoughts, right? When you start, when you really evaluate yourself and go, you know what? Jesus died for me. Wow. And then it makes it much more easier to apply to other people that, wait, Jesus died for that person too. And so if he can die for me in my brokenness, he can die for that person in that brokenness and try to look at things through that lens. So how do we do that? I think we just have to be aware of where we're coming from in that sense, like just bringing our own awareness to what's bothering me about it. Is that about me? Yep. And then hopefully we can move past that and then act in kindness and patience and all yeah. the things. I like that. Reminding ourselves that we are all made in his image. Mm. We, I'm not made in his image any more or any less than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And that feeling of that person doesn't look like me, doesn't act like me, doesn't do life the way that I do life, doesn't make them any less the picture of God and in human form. Mm-hmm. And knowing that brings a level of connection and a level of relationship, being able to relate to someone who you may have absolutely nothing relatable to, except that you know that we are both made in the image of God and God loves us. Mm-hmm. That that's foundation for any kind of relationship, in my opinion. I yeah. feel like we give so much credit to, you know, getting along with people and, and staying connected with people. And of course, you're going to build your friendships with people who you relate to. But if you can relate to everyone on the understanding that we are all made in the image of God, how much easier will it be for us to just pour out his love? Yeah. Too often we fall into a trap of, like, especially in church circles that, well, if you behave like the way we behave and then believe what we believe, then you belong. Mm-hmm. And it should be, let's walk along people so they belong, that maybe they'll come to believe and then they'll be convicted to behave. Yeah. Right? And we tend to come at it backwards, that we're comfortable with people that behave like us and believe like us. And so then you belong. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to flip that. Yeah. Yeah, I love how in in, uh, Luke, when Jesus is asked about those two commandments, he says that someone tries to find a loophole, right? The the expert in the law tries to find a loophole, and Jesus asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? You tell me to love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? And he's like, well, the person you hate, essentially, right? The Good Samaritan, it's like the hero of the story is the person that you think is beyond the scope of love, and it's like so much of what you guys are saying. Uh, Jesus, you know, forces us to kind of see things through that lens. Why do you think love matters so much? Why is it given so much importance in, in new, the New Testament? In what ways have you seen love make a difference? Yeah, I think like I said, in witnessing people take care of others, mm-hmm. that to me really shows tangible action of love. 
And I think it's important because we are all broken, right? And so giving that love to someone else, even within your own brokenness and your own hurt and your own pain, is such a gift. Mm. Um, And and we all have brokenness. Whether we're doing well in our lives or really struggling in our lives, we are all broken because we are all human. And so that love is is a gift, Mm. regardless from where it comes from. In order to be able to love someone is to be able to give them that gift. Yeah. Yeah, I had a thought. Okay, no. Um, sorry, say the question real quick and then it'll come back. It's, I, said, I think I said three rapid fire questions. Yeah. Uh, why does love matter so much? Oh, yes. Again, going back to the motivation, is it in or out? I think that if we are focused on outward love where there's no benefit to us directly, then it comes out as genuine love. The other people on the end of it will res- like feel that it's genuine. But... If you do it with that inward focus, that comes out too. Just as an example, I've never seen anybody do this, but Mm -hmm. this is the thought I was going to use. If you're donating food to a food bank, and then you take a selfie of you and the food, like what's that about? (laughs) Is that a, look at me, I'm helping people. That would come across as the only reason that person did that is so that they can get likes or whatever. Like there's a self-motivation there, whereas... If you just bring in food and not tell anybody, then people know that, hey, somebody genuinely cares. So I think it matters so much that we make sure we're outwardly focused and outwardly focused on other people because how it is received then, it it matters on how it's received. Yeah, totally. All right. Same action, but yeah. Yeah, huge difference in what it communicates. Yeah.